0: adore Him together. And today we're actually going to begin a brand new series, walking through two chapters in the book of Revelation, where Jesus Himself speaks directly to seven different churches. But before we get into any of that, as you are standing, I want to take some time as a church to pray for the situation in Eastern Europe. The situation with Russia and Ukraine and and the implication it has for, for really the world. And so will you we join me with your head bowed. Well, let's go to the Lord, Father. We we come here first and foremost, recognizing how dependent we are upon you, Lord. We are finite creatures; we are limited, and you are infinite, and you are unlimited. And we just rejoice first and foremost, knowing that because of who you are, you are in complete and total control. For that reason, Lord, we once again, even though this world is scary and uncertain, we put our hope and our trust in you. And Lord, we know that you're not only powerful and strong and unlimited, we also know you care. And so, Father, we, we come to you and we just ask for your care to be demonstrated, specifically in, in Ukraine right now. Lord, we pray first for civilians those who are not combatants, we pray that you would protect them, we, you would guard their lives. Lord, we, we pray for the military forces. Father, we pray that you would bring an end to this conflict as soon as possible. Father, we're not going to pretend that we understand all of the, the diplomatic issues involved, but Lord, we, we do ask that you would, you would lead Russia to stop their attack. And that you would uh, allow the Ukrainian people to protect themselves well, to defend themselves well. And Lord, ultimately, we, we ask that because you can use all things for good, Father, we pray that you would use this conflict to, to draw men and women, children, to trust in Jesus, that we would all remember how short life actually is, how uncertain our days are, and you would lead each of us to trust in Jesus and in his death and resurrection, not just in this room, not just watching online, but, but specifically those in Ukraine that are dealing with this terrible threat. Lord, we ask for your help, and we trust you that you will do good. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I hope you continue to pray on your own. But this morning, I want to launch into our new series. And I'm going to ask you to to listen now as you remain standing. I'm going to start reading from Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. This is Jesus speaking directly to a church located in Ephesus. Listen now to these words. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent Yet this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, in which, which is in the paradise of God. Well, let's stop right there. Have a seat. This morning, we're going we're gonna to unravel all of Jesus' words in these seven verses. We're going to talk about what he's saying to th- that church, and we're going we're gonna to look at how it applies to us as a church. But, but I want to set things up for you by, by saying one word, and with this one word, my hope is it gets all of us on the same page in terms of where this text is leading us. One word, I think, is going to capture our attention and move us down the right path. And, and here's that word. Are you ready? It's a very simple word. The word is anniversary. We're, we're all familiar with an anniversary, right? You think about life. Life is full of anniversaries. You think about a, a wedding anniversary. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but we all have other anniversaries we remember, an anniversary is really just a day of remembrance. A birthday, in a sense, is an anniversary. You, you are celebrating the day that you or your, your loved one came into the world, right? I don't know about you, but, but as the calendar moves throughout week after week, there are certain days that they don't even need to be marked on my calendar, but they are days of anniversary that I remember. Some of those days are days when someone near to me passed away. When that day hits on the calendar, my mind, my heart is drawn to how much that person meant to me. And on that day, you know what I do? I, I remember. A personal date for me. Every, every February, I remember my first time preaching at Valley. Four years ago, when the date rolls by, I'm always rem- reminded of how God brought my family here and what a joy it is to be here. It's, it's an anniversary. And then there's the, the most typical of anniversaries, which is a wedding anniversary, when you, when you hopefully remember the love that you had at first. I mean, what makes a great wedding anniversary? Really, it doesn't matter about the dinner or if there's gifts. Ultimately, what you're looking for in a great wedding anniversary is remembering the love that you shared when you made those vows to one another, however many years ago it was, right? Right? I mean, the opposite is true. What makes a, what makes a terrible anniversary? Uh, every service so far, there's been a few guys kind of squirm, worried, <laughs> checking their watches or their calendars. What well, well, if we forget? If you forget an anniversary, that, that does not go very well, does it? Or what if when the day comes, maybe you acknowledge it, but you act like there's nothing different, and you actually do not stop to remember... How meaningful that relationship is. What if, what if, on the anniversary, you take the person that you're supposed to be remembering together with? What happens if you take them for granted? See, I share that. I share the image of an anniversary because I think that gets us on track when we begin to think about Jesus' words to this first church in Ephesus. In fact, the big idea today as we work through this, the the thing that I'm going to ask you to do, the the idea that I want when you leave this room, that I want to be heavy on your heart and on your mind, is I hope that you leave here and that you remember your first love for Christ. That's what I want from you today. I hope that as you leave here, if you already know Jesus, that you are reminded of the love you had at first. Now, I say that recognizing you could be sitting here today and maybe you don't even know what a love for Christ is. If that's you, I'm so excited you're here today because we're going to introduce you to who Jesus is. You're going to see his love for you, and you're going to get an opportunity to learn what it looks like to begin to love him back. Now, Now, that said, let me, let me return to that big idea. Remember your first love for Christ. Why do we need to remember? Here, here's the reason. I just want us to be really honest today. If you have been following Jesus for any amount of time, there are moments in your walk with Christ, there are moments in your pursuit of Jesus where it becomes common, where it becomes normal, when it becomes so regular that, honestly, it becomes religious. It can be easy to fall into a pattern when you're doing religious things and you're doing it disconnected from walking with Jesus. You can do all of the right things. We're going to talk about that. You can check all of the boxes of the Christian life and you can do all of that. What we're going to see is you can do it disconnected from remembering your first love. That, that's Jesus's challenge to this first church. Now, I'd like to give us a little bit of context today. This is from the book of Revelation, which usually we say Revelation, and people, their ears perk up, and they lean forward, and they're like, is he going to talk about the end times? Right? Or maybe you're like this, is he going to talk about the end times? <laughs> but actually, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation don't, Talk about the end time. This is Jesus talking to churches. These are Jesus' direct words to seven different churches. And what you're going to see over the next few weeks is you're going to see a pattern. Jesus is going to talk about himself. He's going to show off. He's going to reveal something about how awesome he is. For most of the churches, he's going to give them a commendation. He's going to say, this is what you're doing awesome. Keep it up. For most of the churches, he's going to give them a condemnation. He's going to say, this is what you're doing wrong, and and it needs to change. Then there's going to be a challenge and a call and a promise. You're going to see this pattern really for every church. Not every church has all of those elements, but by and large, they all do. And and the church in Ephesus certainly does. And, And so today, if you haven't already, would you open up your Bible There's hopefully one around you somewhere if you don't have one, or I know many of us use the screen on our tablet or on our phone. Would you open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 2? Let's begin looking at the very first church Jesus speaks to, and and let's begin looking at how Jesus describes himself. Let's see who Jesus is in this passage. What we're going to see to start is that Christ is sovereignly present with his church, Here's how Jesus begins. He begins by showing us that he is with his church and he is sovereignly and powerfully with his church. Look at Revelation 2 verse 1. Jesus' words, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, let's pick this apart. First of all, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, This would be modern day Turkey, but at the time that Jesus said these words, that John wrote these words in this revelation, this this was a a city, a a metropolitan city, a wealthy city, and it had about a quarter of a million inhabitants. This city was famous because it had the temple for the pagan goddess Artemis. In fact, when Paul, when he was traveling and sharing about Jesus, Paul went to the city, and he had an incredible ministry there. The church, it began when a man named Paul was, he was ministering there, he was preaching about Jesus, and he was so effective. Check this out. So many people were starting to trust in Jesus that they were leaving behind their pagan idolatry and worship. Now, that's a good thing, except... If you're someone who sells idols, go and look it up. Acts chapter 19, read it later this week. Acts chapter 19, those who were manufacturing the idols that were sold so that people could worship them, their profits were going down so much so that they actually started a riot within Ephesus so they could stop the ministry of the gospel from going forward. It's a fascinating story. So, this is a story that was a church that was planted by Paul. And now we have Jesus' words to this church. Here's how he describes himself He says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you're reading this and maybe it's your first time or you have not read it in a while, you're like, Jesus holds seven stars in his hands? You might be wondering, is Jesus literally holding seven cosmic balls of flaming gas within his hand? You're like, whoa, that's pretty amazing. What is he talking about with these stars? And what is he talking about with these lampstands? Well, fortunately for us, we actually know. If you you back up to chapter 1, Jesus tells us what these are. Chapter 1, verse 20, the words of the scripture say, "'As for the mystery of the seven stars.'" that you saw in my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands, here's what they are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus tells us what they are. The seven lampstands, you know what they are? They're churches. They're the seven churches that we're gonna receive letters to. And the seven stars, Jesus says they're angels. Now this is one mystery answered, another mystery begun. (laughs) Is Jesus holding seven angels in his hand? Well, the word angel can mean, it can mean an angelic being appearing before you. Oh my goodness, there's an angel in front of me. But it actually can also mean messenger. There's debate among theologians on, is Jesus talking about an angel in his hand? Or is Jesus talking about a human, like a messenger, likely the leader or a representative of that church? Now, I tend to fall on the, the aspect that I think he's talking about, a, a messenger or a leader within the church. But, but here's the deal. Wherever you land, it does not change the significance of the rest of what Jesus says. Now, what does he say here? He, he says, first of all, that he's present with us. He says, I walk a, among the seven golden lampstands. What, what that means for us today is Jesus is present with his church. Jesus does not let his church... Uh, go out on a limb alone without his presence. Jesus doesn't say, go be a church and figure it out on your own. Go be a church and do it on your own power. Go be a church and, and be disconnected from me. Right out of the gate, Jesus is present with us. But then second, this reminds us that Christ is he's powerful for us. The imagery of holding the seven stars in his right hand is actually the imagery of Jesus' majestic and sovereign power. The, the idea here is they are secure in his hand. The idea here is his hand is powerful. The idea here is that he is, again, he is sovereign, that he rules and that he reigns and that there is nothing in this world that can challenge his power. This imagery of holding in his hand actually reminds us of of some of Jesus' words in the gospel of John. It's interesting. John wrote Revelation, but John also wrote the gospel of John. If you were to look in John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking about his followers, those who believe in him. Verses 27 through 30, you have the same imagery of him holding, powerfully holding in his hand, his people. Verses 27 through 30, I mean this is a this is a marvelous truth a marvelous promise for those who are here who have trusted in Jesus. You realize what Jesus is saying here? He's saying everyone who believes in him, he belie- they, we believe in him because the Father has given us to Christ. And it says Christ says that they are in my hand and he says there is no one who can snatch you out of my hand. In fact, the imagery he says that the Father and Christ together hold his people. This reminds us that we are absolutely secure in his powerful care. Let I me mean, think about this for a minute. Let's just kind of, can we nerd out for a moment theologically? Because this is marvelous in how it describes Jesus Christ. Jesus is present with us. This reminds us that God is, the scripture, or the the theological term is omnipresent. There is nowhere you can go to escape his presence. This reminds us of God and his omnipresence. And this says that we are secure in the powerful hand of Jesus. The Bible describes God as being omnipotent. That's a big theological word. It's really fun for our translator, by the way, too. Omnipotent. The idea here is there is nothing more powerful than Jesus Christ. He's all present. He's all powerful. We've barely even scratched the surface of these seven verses, and our jaw is on the floor marveling at who Christ is. Marveling. Well, Jesus describes himself here, and then he, then he does something awesome. He commends this church. He says to this church, I, I see that you're doing good, and he, he applauds them for it. Let, let's, let's continue. The next thing we see is Christ commends the patient endurance of his church. Verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil and patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Well, let's just brag on Jesus a little bit more. In this passage, we see Christ commends the patient endurance of his church, but we actually see one more attribute of Jesus Christ before we move on. Jesus says, he says, I know your works. Listen, Jesus says, I perceive. I, I see. I, I clearly see your condition. Jesus looks at this church, and he's not only, he's not only, All powerful. He's not only all present, but this reminds us of the third omni of God, God's omniscience. God knows everything. And here, Jesus, he looks at this church and he says, I see your condition. He says, I know exactly what you're going through. I see with absolute, perfect, crystal clear clarity what you are experiencing. In fact, what does he see? He sees, the, the phrase is used twice, they're patient endurance. Patience is the idea of long-suffering, of continuing. And endurance, well, endurance is the idea of remaining under a difficulty, When Jesus looks at this church, he sees this church, they're not looking for an escape. They're not trying to figure out, how do I avoid trouble? How do I make sure life's not hard? He says, I see that you are patiently enduring. You are continually remaining under the difficulties and the pressures of life following me. He perceives their condition perfectly he sees that they're not growing weary. They're not giving up. They're they're not saying it's too hard. They're enduring. And and in these two verses, this phrase, patient endurance, I think it's fleshed out in two attributes of this church. In their patient endurance, we see that they have a bias for action. Now, I think that we learn, as we look at this church in Ephesus, that patient endurance, it has a bias for action When you patiently endure, you don't just put your your hands under your backside and sit on them. When you patiently endure, you don't put your head in the sand and wait for difficulty to pass. We see this church is, they are biased toward action. They are moving. They're pressing forward. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. The word works here, this is the idea of your deeds or your actions or your tasks. When it's used in the plural, as it is right here, it's the idea of the entirety of your actions, the entirety of your life. Jesus says, I'm looking at the entirety of your life and the works that you do. And then that second word, toil, this is the idea of difficult work. This is the idea of, of effort and hard work. This is the idea of labor and pressing forward. This is the picture of sweating and your knuckles are, are bare and bloody because you're, you're putting your hand to the plow and you're moving forward and you're pressing forward in life. The point in all of this is they are, listen, they are doing the work of the ministry, That's what Jesus is saying. He says, I see that you are doing the work of the ministry. Let me just ask you. If Jesus were to come and give commentary at Valley, if he were to look at us as a church, I wonder if he would say this to us. Or or maybe if Jesus were to come and give commentary on your life, I wonder if he would say this to us. Do you think he'd be able to come and say, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. He says, I see you doing the work of the ministry, pressing forward, pushing the envelope, trying to move the work of the ministry and the gospel of Jesus Christ forward into the world. I wonder if he would say that about us. In fact, this is is a core component of the Christian life. This is why we, we kind of make a big deal. If you're, you see those connection cards we talk about every week, one of those cards, it says, put me in, coach, right? It probably should say, let's do the work of the ministry. Just, this is just a simple reminder to, to, to be part of the church. It's wonderful to have you come and worship with us on the weekend. We're so glad you're here. But, but that's not the full picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of toil, toil, And labor of striving and patient endurance as we together, arm in arm, do the work of the ministry. See, patient endurance, it has a bias for action. But secondly, in this text, we see that patient endurance, it has a burden for truth. Let me show you what I mean. The rest of verse two, Jesus says, He says, and you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. This is a a burden for truth. Listen, this church, they they had people come to them saying that they were apostles. For our language right now, teachers of the Bible, authoritative teachers of the Bible. People would come to them saying this, and this church had learned how to test them. To test them. You see, truth requires the testing of teachers we say this pretty regularly here at valley but every single bible teaching you hear on the radio in songs that you listen to on podcasts on youtube and honestly anytime anyone stands up here at this pulpit and preaches to you everything anyone says when they're saying thus saith the lord it requires testing It requires testing. We see that here. And and so then the question is, how do we test? How do we test those who teach? Well, first of all, we test their their words. We test their words. We we covered this a number of weeks ago, actually in November, when we were in our series on um, 1 Thessalonians. November 6th, I preached a message, and it was called uh, On Track with God's Word. If you're curious about how to test the teaching of anyone, I don't have time for all of it today, I'd encourage you to go listen to that. We we went kind of a deep dive into how to test teaching. But we see right here, they test the teaching of those who are false apostles. Verse 3, we get some nuance here. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. My name's sake. What does this mean? The name's sake of Jesus Christ. In relation to testing those who teach, I think this, this, is, our, this is our plumb line. This is our, our guidepost. This is what gives us direction. See, all the teaching that we hear needs to be tested against the word of God, but ultimately all of it needs to be tested along the lines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's, here are the two spectrums that we find ourselves dealing with when it comes to teaching. The gospel, if it stands in the middle, sometimes we have teaching on this far side in our world. And this is what we would call legalistic teaching. Here's what it sounds like you have someone that that they look like a Bible teacher and they sound like a Bible teacher and they use verses from the Bible, but here's the core of their message. The, The core of their message sounds something like here is how good you have to be for God to love you, here are all the things that you have to obey so that you can go to heaven. And it's like a list of, of behaviors and a list of rules, which all of those exist in the Scripture. They are pulling them out of, but they're pulling them out of the Scripture and missing the very core, the namesake of Jesus Christ. You know what it is when someone says, here is what you have to do to be good enough to go to heaven? It is a heretical lie out of the pit of hell. Listen very carefully. carefully legalism is when people are trying to teach you that you can earn your salvation. I'm going to be very clear. There is nothing any one of us can do to earn the salvation in Jesus Christ. There there is not one of us who can be good enough, who can be moral enough, who can clean up our act enough so that God will say, "Oh, you finally made it." Well, good job. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The scripture speaks very clearly that none of us can be good enough. That's what makes the gospel of Jesus so wonderful. Jesus was perfect. And then, in his perfect obedience to the Father, he sacrificed himself. He became our substitute, and he died and paid the price for our sins, was buried and resurrected, so that everyone who believes in him, in his name, for his name's sake, everlasting life. That's, that, that, that's the first way we test. We test their words. But secondly, we test their works. We test their works. Skip ahead to verse 6 with me. Thematically, this is kind of in the commendation section, even though it skips over verse 5. Uh, here, here's what verse 6 says. Jesus says, Yet you have this, or yet this you have, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, Jesus says to this church in Ephesus, he says, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't actually know what the works of the Nicolaitans were. There are lots of theories, but there's nothing historically that gives us perfect visibility into that. Uh, I have some opinions, and they would be really fun to share, but it will take a little bit too much time. And so if you're really curious, come ask me later, and I'd love to walk you through what I think. But that said, what we know is they had evil works. Listen, if one end of the spectrum is legalism, the other end of the spectrum is where we find the Nicolaitans and their evil works. Some will teach, you've got to be good enough. Some will teach this. They'll say, hey... You know, Jesus died for your sin, right? And, and he, he made it so you can be forgiven. And you know what that means? That his grace is demonstrated beautifully because of your sin. And so because of that, you know what you and I, we can do? We should just sin. We should sin even more because the more we sin, guess what? The more God's grace gets poured out and the more God's grace gets poured out, the more glory God gets for saving our wretched selves we want to laugh. I see some faces like this. That's exactly what our culture teaches, though. This side's called legalism. This side's called license. Do whatever you want, and we'll all be forgiven. Don't, don't pay any attention to the, the moral standards of, of the Scripture, because you're forgiven. You, you don't need those anymore. That's called license. License. But again, the gospel, the gospel defeats both legalism and license. The gospel says, because of the work of Christ, you have been saved, you have been freed, and in your freedom, you now walk in holiness. You now walk in the goodness of Jesus Christ. Not perfectly. Well, it's more like we stumble our way in holiness, but it's in holiness nonetheless. We test their words, and we test their works. This this is the commendation Jesus gives to the church. He says, you are doing well in your patient endurance with your bias for action and and with your burden for truth. But Jesus, he doesn't end with just saying, hey, good job. Jesus has a correction for this church. If you continue with me to verse 4, we're going to see that Christ Christ, He condemns what I'm going to call passive obedience in his church. Christ condemns passive obedience in his church. This is what we'll describe as going through the motions. This is what we'll say is doing the right thing without the right heart. This is what we'll say is serving Jesus but not walking with Jesus. Look at verse 4. He says, But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus looks at this church and he says, "Here's, here's my condemnation of you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. That word abandoned means exactly what you think it means. It means to leave, to forsake, to walk away from, depart, or to give up. He says, you've abandoned something. What is it that we've abandoned? He says, you've abandoned the love that you had at first or your first love. That word first, can, be, it, can be, it can mean first temporally, as in first in time or in order, like initial love, or it can mean first in priority, as in importance, as in Jesus having your highest affection. It might mean both in this context, but the point here is that this church in Ephesus, they are doing all the right things, disconnected from the right heart. You've abandoned your first Love. And if, I think if we're willing to be honest today, I think we can find ourselves there really easily. Do you realize that all of the actions that we participate in as Christians, we can do them exactly the same way with Christ as our first love and having abandoned Christ as our first love? I mean, just think about it with me. Maybe you've developed the, the habit of reading your Bible every day. If you have, God bless you. That is one of the primary ways that you can grow spiritually is daily digesting the word of God. But, but I'll tell you what, there's been times in my life where I read this Bible and it's, it's all up here and it's very little here. And I'm filling my mind with great things and I'm becoming more uh, accurate in my understanding of the scripture, but I'm not doing it in, in awe of Jesus Christ. I'm not doing it loving him. I'm just, okay, reading. Okay, go check. Done. Prayer can be the same way, can't it? We know we should pray, and so we, 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 we take time and we pray, but how often do we pray? And really where our mind is is on the task list of all the things we have to do once we're done praying. And so instead of stopping and stilling our heart and simply being with the Lord in prayer, what do we do? Pray through our list and get moving to what's next. How about what we're doing right now? How easy is it to come to a worship service, to sing the words, to listen to the message, to to engage in the community, but it's not about Christ. It's about good things. It's about community. It's about fellowship. It's about learning. Maybe it's not about good things. Maybe it's about our appearance or or how smart we want to look or how good we want to look or whatever, But, but at the end of the day, you realize we can come and we can do all of this Having left our first love. Jesus says, This I have against you. You have abandoned your first love. Notice the scripture says, You do not lose your first love, you leave it. Your first love isn't like your keys where you're like, Oh my goodness, where did I put those? And you start turning over couch cushions or whatever it looks like in your house. You don't lose it like, Oh man, the, uh, I, I, it was an accident. This word is much more severe. He says, you've abandoned it. W- why do we abandon our first love? I-, I think there's a few ways, a few reasons. Typically what happens when we abandon our first love is we've got Christ as our first love right here, but then something shiny comes along. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a goal Maybe it's some materialistic item. Maybe it's a pleasure. Maybe it's something entertaining. But but we, we got Christ here as our first love, and then we oh look at this shiny thing over here. And I don't think we mean to necessarily, but we do. But we abandon him. We leave him behind. We disconnect from him as our primary love. See, I I would argue that when we leave our first love, it's ultimately because we forget the gospel. It's because we forget the gospel. Sometimes it's because something's shiny. But but let's just be, uh, I'm going to be a little bit uh, introspective for you. Here's what it usually looks like in my life. Oftentimes I start thinking highly of myself, and I start thinking little of Christ. I got, I got life worked out fine. Things are going just fine. I got, I got my basis covered. I'm doing the right things in the right ways. You know what? I'm a pretty good guy. I'm doing really good for myself, right? And I forget that spiritually speaking, I am wicked and wretched and far from God and left to my own devices. I am hopeless and helpless. The, the moment I start thinking, man, I'm doing really good, is the moment I forget that I was a spiritual zero and that Jesus is really the spiritual hero. I forget that. Do you forget that? At the same time, you know what we end up doing is, you know, if we're, if we're in Christ and we become accustomed to being in Christ, Christ can become common in our lives. It's like the wedding anniversary where you take your spouse for granted. How often do I take God's goodness and kindness and faithfulness in my life for granted? How often do I take the gift of salvation, the fact that Jesus died and paid the price for my sins? How often do I take that? For granted. Can I ask something today? As we listen to Jesus' words to this church in Ephesus, is it possible he's saying the same words to you right now? But this I have against you. You have abandoned your first love. If that's you, what do you do? Do you get a bunch of ash and pour it on your head and, and go weep and crawl cry, under in, your sheets and just say, uh-uh, I'm worthless? The great news now is that Jesus tells us exactly what to do. Jesus says, if you find yourself in this moment where you have lost your first love, let me show you how to get back to it. In fact, verse 5, we're going to see that Christ calls his church to a restored affection. He calls his church to a restored, a renewed affection. Verse 5, Jesus says, "'Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent.'" Simply put, answering the question, how do you get back to your first love? Jesus gives three instructions and then one kind of descriptive warning. Let's just walk through these. The first instruction, the words of the scripture says, remember from where you have fallen. I would say simply remember the gospel. Remember, remember that moment when the gospel first made sense. Do you remember? Maybe you were a kid. Maybe you were a teen. Maybe you were an adult. Maybe it hasn't happened for you yet. But, but he says, you need to remember, remember the moment when it first made sense that Jesus, that he lived a perfect sinless life and that you, you were dead in your sin and trespass. He says, remember that moment when all of that guilt you were carrying that felt like a 50, 100 pound backpack of guilt and shame. Remember that moment you trusted in Jesus and that backpack fell off and all of that weight was removed. He, said, he says, remember that moment when you came to the foot of the cross, when you were covered in the grime and the scum of your shame and all of the sin and all of the wrong, and you were wicked in your very core. Remember that moment when you were washed clean and made pure. He says, remember Remember that you were alone and you were far from God. And through Jesus and his death and resurrection, God the Father, he lifted you up and he adopted you. And he made you his child. Remember from how how far you've fallen. After service today, we're going to remember the most important thing we're going to do with our church meeting is we're going to share communion. You know what communion is? It's a remembrance. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. I have a theory. I think if we get this first step right, the rest of them come almost as easy as the, as the dawn rising in the morning. If we remember the goodness of Jesus Christ, if we remember the forgiveness we have in him, if we remember the spiritual blessings that we receive, look at these next few steps. The next thing he says is repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. This is the idea that you've been chasing whatever that shiny thing is, but you remember how Christ is worth so much more. And so when you repent, you turn around and you, you follow Christ instead when we properly remember how glorious Jesus is, listen, there is nothing in this world that's worth comparing to him. If we remember, repentance becomes pretty natural. And then he says, renew the work. He says, renew the work. He says, he says and do the works you did at first. This is the idea. I would say keep doing all of the good work we're doing, but just do it connected in Christ. Do it with Jesus as your primary priority. <laughs> All of that flows out of remembering. And lastly, I think we have to recognize what is at stake. Jesus says, if you do not repent, he says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is terrible news. Jesus says to churches, he says, listen, if you do not if you do not live with me as your priority, he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to close your doors. Your church is not going to exist anymore. We see that in our world today. We see churches that their doors close. We see churches that no longer function as a church because they no longer teach the scripture. They no longer teach the gospel. They land on this end of the spectrum or they land on this end of the spectrum. And Jesus says, you're, you're no longer my church. I'm going to put out your lampstand you're not going to have a light for the gospel anymore. This is Jesus' correction. This is his recipe for success in fixing it. Remember. Remember. The last words of this text, verse 7. Finally, we, we, we find Jesus, he commits eternity to those who conquer. Verse 7 says, He who has ear, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, I just want to briefly sit here for a moment. Maybe this language is a little confusing. Let me, let me bring some clarification. When Jesus here, when he talks about the paradise of God, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about heaven. He's talking about, I'm going to give you heaven. When he talks about the tree of life, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about eternal life. He says, not only are you going to go to heaven, but you're going to be able to live, not, not be dead, but to live there forever. And then he says, this is for the one who conquers. Now we get all sorts of imagery in our mind. What does it look like to conquer? Do I have to go to battle? Do I have to make sure I never sin again? How do I conquer? This is great news. See, the conqueror, according to the Scripture, is the gospel believer. The conqueror is the gospel believer. Conquering is not you being strong enough or wise enough or good enough on your own. Let me show you what I mean. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. John wrote Revelation. John wrote the Gospel of John, which we looked at earlier. And then John also wrote three short letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John, chapter 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes or, or that conquers? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You know what this verse does? It, it keeps us from these far ends, and it puts us right square, standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, if you want victory if you want to overcome, if you want to conquer, if you want the paradise of God, which is heaven, and if you want to eat of the tree of life, which is eternal life, you know what you have to do? It's not be good enough. And it's not do whatever you want. So you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who died and rose again for you. Let really? me... Let me ask the question I've asked before today. Are these words that we think Jesus might say to us? As a church, are are we a church, in your estimation, are we a church that is patiently enduring? Are we a church that is biased for action and has a burden for truth? Is that us? Is that you? Is that describing your life? What is a church but really the sum total of all the people that gather together? And then as a church, honestly, are we a church that's lost our first love? Are we doing all the right things? You heard about mission trips, and we've got meetings, and there's life groups, and all of this. Are we doing all the right things, but are we doing it without the right heart? And more importantly, is that you? Have you lost your first love? Today, the great news is that you can return to it. And it starts simply by remembering Christ. I'm going to invite you. Would you just take a moment? Would you close your eyes? Stephen's going to come and, and Linda and they're going to lead us in a reflective song of worship. And as they do, the best thing you can do right now is to remember Remember who Jesus is. Remember what Jesus has done. And maybe you're sitting here today, and this is the first time the story of Jesus has made sense to you. If that's you, I want to tell you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that Jesus is calling you to himself. Don't let this day pass without taking a moment and putting your trust and your faith in him. Take this next moment to go before the Lord.